0: Please take your copy of God's Word and turn back to the first passage that we read, our Old Testament reading, to Isaiah chapter 3. We come in our exposition of uh, the prophecy of Isaiah 2, chapter 3, and we'll be, with the Lord's help, seeking to cover the whole of this chapter. So Isaiah chapter 3, it opens with these words, For behold, the Lord, the Lord of hosts, doth take away from Jerusalem and from Judah the stay and the staff, the whole stay of bread, and the whole stay of water. In Galatians 6 and verse 7, Paul, writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, lays down a moral principle. The text says this, Be not deceived. God is not mocked. For whatsoever a man soweth, that shall he also reap. This inflexible truth is more certain than the law of gravity, which we describe as things that go up must come down. Here, What is provided for us in this moral principle is more certain. And yet men doubt it. Men ignore it. Men look the other way and turn from it. They doubt it to their peril. That what a man soweth, he shall also reap. They doubt that to their peril. Which is why the passage begins with, the verse begins with the words, Be not deceived. Because the natural inclination is going to be deceived. It's going to think that in this case, there's an exception. Or in this instance, it won't be the case. Or that this general principle does not universally apply. That what a man sows, he will also reap. Some doubt it because because they see delay in God's dealings. So, for example, Ecclesiastes chapter 8, verse 11. Because sentence against an evil work, is not executed speedily. Therefore, the heart of the sons of men is fully set in them to do evil. This delay works in the souls of men in order to fuel rather than to restrain uh, their, their evil. But we're told in Galatians 6, we can be sure of this. God is not mocked. We can be sure of that. God will never stand to be mocked. He'll never stand to have his glory degraded. This is something sure. Therefore, sowing sin is always followed by reaping judgment. Sowing in sin is always, always followed by reaping judgment. Now that's that's true corporately. It's true of nations, it's true of churches, as you see in Revelation 2 and 3, as well as individuals. So it's it's true of people collectively as well as, as individual people. So you think of Proverbs where we're told, righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a reproach to any people. Sin brings reproach with it and all the degradation that follows it. So here we are In Isaiah chapter 3, the title of our sermon is Sowing Sin, Reaping Judgment. And for good reason, this is not an easy chapter to read. It's not an easy chapter to think about or to even hear preached. But we've seen something already. We saw in chapter 1 how the Lord comes through his prophetic word and exposes his people and says, here's who you are. And in that instance, he's dealing with the hypocrisy and formality. And he's saying, you know, you've become like Sodom and Gomorrah. And then in chapter two, we saw after that opening section, which points us forward, lifts us out of the fog and brings us into the brightness of what God promises to his church in the future, he descends back down into the present. And as we saw last week, he says, yes, that's your future, but let's talk about what your present circumstances are. And there we saw a description of their Present circumstances, and now in chapter three, we see something of the consequences that flow from the sins that have been enumerated in chapter two. These are the consequences that follow, and so we begin with this principle: very simple, that that we're not to be deceived. God is not mocked. What a man soweth, he will also reap. And I want to say something here pastorally. I think it's important. It's important to me. It should be important to you. Early on in our study of of Isaiah, we have the opportunity in chapter, in uh, chapters like this one, like chapter three, we have an opportunity to grow in wisdom. There are a lot of things happening in chapter three, a lot of things that we're to learn and take away from it. But among other things, the thing we can overlook and miss is the opportunity to be, that we should seize to grow in wisdom. You say, okay. How so? Well, this is how. We come to the word of God and we study what it says. We learn principles. The Lord gives us truths. He gives us principles. And then he also provides us with patterns. He he enables us to see, okay, here's the principle. Here's how it's being applied. And then here are examples of the patterns that follow from those principles then we're able to take that and we return to perhaps our own circumstances or in looking at another section of history but most relevant in our own circumstances and we observe God's providence in the present and when when we do this we we have each of these components what happens is we're learning to actually biblically we're learning to connect dots we're learning to connect dots and in doing so we're able to understand the times in which we live. We study hard the Word of God. What are the principles that He gives us? Okay, what are the patterns that flow from this? Now, what are we seeing at present in, in Divine Providence? The reason that this, this this um this windfall of wisdom is so important is because in our day and age, 21st century America, it is very popular in Reformed circles to say that this is to be excluded from our thinking. So, for example, a minister should not get up in the case of, of judgment. A minister should not get up in his pulpit and say, God is bringing judgment here at this time and in this way. That's completely inappropriate. You know, you're not a prophet and, and you don't have an infallible interpretation of providence. But they're wrong in terms of the conclusions they draw. It's a non sequitur. It does not follow. To say that because we don't have a prophetic office, nor an infallible interpretation of providence, that therefore we have no credible interpretation of providence at all. No. The Bible tells us, in fact, this is what wisdom is. It's the application of the word of God to our specific circumstances. Is the believer in their Christian experience, I mean, you think of how, what absurdity that idea that I've just said would lead to. If you apply it to a different arena, to a person's personal life, So as the individual Christian to say, I can't know or see anything about what God is doing with me in my life. What foolishness that would be? No, the Christian sits under the preaching of God's word. They read the Bible. They study the Bible. They sing psalms, so on and so forth. And in the process, God is speaking to them through his word and helping them to see in wisdom, how that word applies to their particular circumstances. Promises, warnings, God's chastening of us, all sorts of things, right? Well, the same thing is true more generally. The same principle applies more generally. People are flying blind. People are absolutely in the dark. People are ignorant. The church, I mean, in the West, because of a loss of of instruction in this regard, right? The, the forsaking of wisdom. We should be able to come to the word of God and say, okay, here's what the Lord says about sin. Here are the principles he gives. Here are the ways in which he brings judgment. Here are the patterns that are followed. All of that is furnishing me with light, with, with infallible truth that I then take and through which I look as a lens upon the world around me. And I can say, ah, in this particular circumstance, here's the divine pattern that God has told us, has shown us. And here are the divine principles that he has laid up in the storehouse of his word. And we're able to employ that connecting the dots and understanding our own times and circumstances. I've belabored that point. It's an important one. We'll come back to it in time to come. But when you come to passages like this, This is one of the things we should have in view. Here we have sins and the signs of judgment. And behind it all, of course, behind it all, is the fact that God is provoked, not mocked. Verse 8, for Jerusalem is ruined and Judah is fallen because their tongue and their doings are against the Lord to provoke the eyes of his Glory! This is what lies behind everything, and what's true of people in general with regards to this is even more applicable when it comes to God's own people. You think, for example, in the book of uh, in the prophet uh, Amos, the Lord is detailing some of His judgments on the sins of other nations, and then He comes to His own nation. And in chapter three, verse two, He says. You only have I known of all the families of the earth. Therefore, I will punish you for all your iniquities. And that's speaking to the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. Again, Revelation 2 and 3 exemplify that in the New Testament. So our, th- our title is Sowing Sin, Reaping Judgment. Three things that we'll seek to highlight from this passage. First of all, the sin... And the judgment that follows results, first of all, in the collapse of social order. Verses 1 to 11. The collapse of social order. We're told that they have been brought down to the level of Sodom. Verse 9. To show of their countenance doth witness against them. And they declare their sin as Sodom. They hide it not. and, And so on. And so in verses 1 to 7, we're, we're hearing something about how God rewards their sin. How it is that God rewards their sin. In a nutshell, the cream of the cream is removed. The cream of the cream of the nation is removed. There's a, a degeneracy of all segments, all components, all ranks within society. We're told that God takes away all their supply and all of their support, as we saw in verse 1. The whole, the stay in the staff, the whole staff of bread and the whole stay of water. In other words, in verses 1 to 7, we're, we're seeing an economic paralysis that, uh, that results. Chapter 2, among, among their other gods... One of their gods was materialism. One of the ones that we noted, right? There were four or five that we noted there. One was materialism. Well, the Lord often takes the sin, the idolatry, and actually uses that as part of the judgment. So when you can find a nation's sins, when you can identify their idols, you can derive this lesson. God will usually take those very idols as a means of bringing judgment against them. So here we see it. Food and water is taken away. Right, That's what's described in verse verse 1. Food and water is taken away. What does that mean? That equals famine. So there's famine. This is exactly what the Lord told them would happen as a result of their covenant breaking, their disobedience and rebellion. Deuteronomy 28, here are the curses of the covenant. They include this. They include famine. Indeed, there are, if you're taking notes three primary three primary judgments that are perennial that are you know continually being referenced throughout bible uh, throughout the bible and exemplified throughout history the three big ones when judgment reaches its culmination are famine pestilence and the sword right those are the three that we see over and over and over and over and over and over and over again in the bible When judgment is reaching its culmination, famine, pestilence, sword. That's where you expect the Lord to be found when he's bringing judgment. So that's true here. There's famine. We see later on chapter war and so on. But it's not only a a loss of the supply of things like food and water. The cream of the cream is removed in terms of people. So the backbone of the nation, the best and the brightest Of the nation are taken away that's what we're told right there's the mighty man the man of war the judge the prophet the prudent the ancient the captain of 50 honorable men counselors the the cunning artificer the skilled workman the eloquent orator and so on the cream of the cream is being taken is being taken away there's a brain drain to use a contemporary expression that is taking place men of rank men of ability men of might are being taken away now We fast forward, and what do we discover? This is exactly what happens. Nebuchadnezzar comes rolling in in his chariots, right? The the strength of the Chaldeans of Babylon. They sack Judah and Jerusalem. They gutted of all of their resources, and they take away the best and brightest of their sons. And so there's Daniel. The whole story of Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego is an example of this, right? They're being hauled off. Uh, into into babylon in order that they might be put to use their gifts might be put to use for the enemy and so on and so this is what the lord's saying there's this catastrophic and and sequential collapse of of social order in verses four to seven what happens is that the the worthless youth take over and so that's what happens right the the immature Rise to the top. I will give children to be their princes. Babes shall rule over them. You know, it goes on to say, the child shall behave himself proudly against the ancient, the base against the honorable, and so on and so forth. Right? So now, confusion. Confusion is abounding. All loss, verse 5, all loss of the, the, the concept of station, of position within society, erased right? There's this leveling effect. And so respect for age, gone. Respect respect for rank and station, that disappears. And it results instead in violence. Results in violence. This is confusion that's happening. You have, we're told, two brothers. One goes to the other one and says, "You you have clothes. You take charge of this house, of our father's house. You take over. Notice it's referred to as a heap of ruins. You take over and rule over this ruins. No, I'm not going to rule over this ruins. I don't have, you know, X, Y, and Z. I don't have clothing and so on. Don't make me rule over the people. There's confusion that's happening here. This is what's described. And then, of course, oh, this this collapse ensues. Verse 8, it's the Lord who's being provoked. Uh, the the The... The collapse, this demolition, if you will, this disintegration of society is seen in the fact that their sin is open and brazen. They declare their sin as Sodom, they hide it not. There's open, brazen sin. So they're not hiding it. This is what, you know, we read elsewhere about. The inability to blush. No longer able to blush. No no sense of shame. No registered consciousness of shame. Instead, they're parading their sins in the streets. They take what was formerly secret, and now they bring it out into the full view of, of the public. And people today think to themselves, oh, well, you know, when we see this happening, relevant as ever, oh, no, that means God is going to judge us as a result. Right and wrong, mostly wrong. What it means is that God is judging us. Not just that he will judge us for these things. These things are him judging us. And what's worse is this, it's terrible to have the inception of judgment, the beginnings of judgment, any degree of judgment. But it's even worse when judgment isn't seen as judgment and where judgment is not improved, when it doesn't lead to humiliation, it doesn't lead to repentance, it doesn't lead to submission, it doesn't lead to recovery and turn back to the Lord. Because that means more judgment to come. And so we see, first of all, the collapse of social order. This is kind of the culmination of things. Secondly, another mark is chaos in leadership. Verses 12 to 14. Chaos in leadership. As for my people, children are their oppressors, and women rule over them. Oh, my people... They which lead thee cause thee to err and destroy the way of thy paths. Everybody wants to be on the train of progress. Everybody thinks of progress as great. The problem is when progress in reality is actually advancing backwards. If we are advancing backwards, that is regress. Not progress. There's a regression that is taking place. And this is what's happening. And so as the nation moves forward, they're actually moving backward. They think they're moving forward. They're actually moving backward. And now there's chaos in their, their leadership. We, we, you'll note here that the future loss of leaders, which is described also, is due to the unbecoming behavior of the leaders that they have now themselves. What does that mean? It means when God is going to overthrow a nation, he removes the leadership. He removes, I should say, sound leadership. He removes wise leadership. He removes, you know, good, righteous leadership and so on. But when there is wicked leadership, that too is judgment, not just a cause of judgment. It is a cause of judgment, a further judgment, but it is itself judgment. You have, you have set for yourselves kings, he tells, through, tells them through Hosea. You have appointed kings, but not by me. You've set up kings, but not by me, the Lord says. Appointed them after your own fancy, and so on. Leaders like unto yourself and whatnot. This is judgment for the Lord to give a nation, to give a people, leaders that are like themselves when they are debased in, in sin. And so in verse 12, he says, children are their oppressors. Women rule over them. We saw this earlier in verse 4. I will give children to be their princes and babes shall rule over them. You have, rather than the most um, qualified, rather than those who have the most study, the most wisdom, the most experience, the most maturity, Uh, the most skill and proven and tested ability. Rather than having those kind of men as leaders, instead we have the infantile. We have humiliatingly, embarrassingly immature, whatever their age, children, ruling over and oppressing the people of God. And that's not enough. So that's inexperience, that's incompetence, that's weakness, and so on. But he says also, a mark of judgment is that women rule over you. Now, I preached on Wednesday night about the important place of, wi- wi- of women uh, within the church. Glorious place, you know, important place, indispensable place, beautiful place within the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. But that place is not in leadership, in the home, in the church, or in the state. That place is not in leadership. And it is a judgment of God When women who have such a vital, important, beautiful role within the the economy of God reject that role and assume to themselves are pushed into positions that, that they don't belong in. It's a curse for women to rule over a people. Now, we can take a leaf here from our own church, our own church's history. Because you have the example Of John Knox whom no doubt you know penned a book called the first trumpet blast against the monstrous regiment of women the first trumpet blast against the monstrous regiment of women and it was a book uh, aimed at Mary who was serving as monarch over the land right a woman magistrate well that was not well received. You know, People hear the, you know, oh, isn't this so funny? Listen to the title of Knox's book. There is absolutely nothing funny about it. He didn't intend it to be funny. The Lord wasn't funny in terms of the truths he's expounding. And the nation that he wrote to didn't take it as funny. It's not funny. It's serious. He was banished from the country as a result of that book. Right? There was no laughing matter in it. But he's speaking to this point, the point of, of have the, the curse of having women rule over us. And so the result is that they're at sea, right? They're we're being told that they which lead thee cause thee to err and, and destroy. They swallow up the way of, of thy paths. You know, t- there, there's the tyranny of weaklings. Children are their oppressors, right? Tyranny is all, despotism is always an evil. But when it's in the hands of weaklings... Of, of of people that are completely inexperienced and incompetent it's only compounding the problem and if that's not a b- bad enough their religious leadership doesn't know their right hand from their left they don't know the backwards from their forwards either and so what do the prophets do in order to court the, the in order to uh, to to court favor with the kings they tell the kings what they want to hear i mean th- this isn't conjecture he's writing at the time of Ahab we know for a fact first kings 22 that Ahab wouldn't listen to the true prophets. He didn't want to hear from Micaiah. Right? He wanted an idol song to be sung to him. He wanted prophets who were going to come and tell him exactly what he wanted to hear. That everything he was doing was great and that the future was bright and that everything was going to only get better and so on and so forth. And that's what happens, right? You have you have those who are coming as prophets from God, allegedly, false prophets. And they're they're leading the people Astray, they're leading them into error. This is a problem, and so, in verses thirteen and fifteen to fifteen, the Lord stands up. Jehovah standeth up to plead and standeth to judge the people. The Lord will enter into judgment with the ancients of his people, the princes thereof. ye' have eaten up my vineyard, the spoil of the poor is your house in, is in your houses. What mean ye? that you beat my people to pieces and grind the faces of the poor, saith the Lord God of hosts. Judgment is pronounced, court is held, but it's God's court this time. And the Lord comes into his own courtroom, both as the prosecutor and the judge. And he says, in essence, be not deceived. I will not be mocked. What a man soweth, he shall also reap. That's what's happening here. And so the Lord comes as judge. It's a strong word. We sing about this, right? In places like Psalm 143, verse one forty three, verse 2, where we, 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 we plead in song, Lord, enter not into judgment with thy servant. We have a sense of the weight of what that means. That word means for the Lord to bring judgment. He's issuing an indictment against his people, against this nation, And he's saying, I'm going to write the record here. I am going to bring my verdict to bear. And no longer will it be what people think and what people say and what is popular and what has power and so on and so forth. But it will be the Lord's word first and the Lord's word last. And nothing else. And so the Lord comes to this people who, as we saw in chapter 2, full of superstition. Full of materialism, full of idolatry, and so on and so forth. And he says, judgment's coming, and it's going. It's, it's it's going to include. It does include chaos. In leadership, we are very poor students. We are very poor students sometimes. And it's so easy, right, to to study the history of God's works, God's works of providence. It doesn't take much. Okay, so we have the flood. Then we have Babel. Then we have Sodom and Gomorrah. We have the plagues of Egypt. we got Nadab and Abihu. we got Korah. We've got Assyria. And we've got the Babylonian captivity. And what happened to Persia and Greece and Rome and, you know, Ananias and Sapphira in the New Testament, the seven churches of Asia. And then what takes place historically after the apostles? This isn't rocket science. The problem is people don't have a mind to study, to apply their hearts and minds. What does God say? And what does God do? The Lord is telling us to sit up and take notes, to pay attention, to glean wisdom, to understand who He is, the glory that belongs to Him, the insufferable evil that men are prone to, and the consequences of judgment that flow from that. Whatever age, whatever place, chaos and leadership, Thirdly, there is calamity on the women. Calamity on the women, verses 16 and following. And this this strikes us all, well, at least strikes me, as somewhat surprising. Here's why. Because usually, the Lord is always targeting the men. The men are held responsible. Fathers are held responsible. Religious leaders are held responsible. Male magistrates are held responsible you know if there are blessings it comes under that leadership if there are judgments it comes under that leadership everywhere it seems most of the time the lord is confronting the men and saying the buck stops with you and and you're being held accountable and that the consequences are being laid at your feet and so on that's usual that's normal men leaders and so on but we do have these few other examples and one of them's right here in chapter Isaiah chapter 3 ladies are not exempt ladies are not exempt and so the lord gives us here a catalog of their all their ornaments of you know luxury and their ostentation all the evidences of their pride and of their sensuality i mean some of these things you'll know a lot of marginal notes going through this section. right? The, the language that's being used here. You know, wimples, which are shawls or cloaks, crisping pins, which are curling pins for the hair and so on. So there's this catalog. But, but what, it's, what, it's, what, it's, what it's showing us is not the things in and of themselves per se, but it's speaking to luxury, ostentation, pride, sensuality, and so on. And so it's relevant. It's relevant because, after all, women comprise half the world's population. So it shouldn't surprise us, really, that the Lord confronts them as well at times. They comprise half the population of the globe. And if that's not enough, women have a huge moral influence everywhere in, in society. And so we're told here that they have become a source of corruption, that the women have become a source of corruption in their homes and in the land, that the women are agents of moral degradation. Now, you actually get this, you know, they get this as well in the New Testament. Paul speaks about, you know, silly women being led captive and speaks about those who are tail bearers and. It also speaks, as I'll reference in just a moment, the, to this this sensual ostentation and so on. So the language here, in verse 16, we're told that they, they walk with stretched forth necks and wanton eyes, walking and mincing. It's like, you know, tiptoeing as they go, making a tinkling with their feet. So this is a picture of pride, right? The a stretched out uh, neck. So rather than chaste, rather than modest, rather than, you know, what one might think of as the lowering of the eyes, you know, of the, you know, that modest expression that we would think of. Instead, you know, it's craned out, stretched high, nose lifted, head high, you know, and with that, look at me and drawing attention to oneself and with the little tiptoeing and the tinkling with their feet and all of this business flirtation so there's there's obviously here in this and what follows all their all their get up and gear their ornaments as our passage says all of this shows a love for beauty but not the beauty of holiness so there's a love for beauty that terminates in sensuality, and in ostentation, and in self, the opposite of, of, of modesty. It's not, a, a, not the beauty of holiness. And so again, you come to the New Testament, and this is precisely where the Lord puts his finger, because he says in First Peter 3, um, verse 2, speaking to the wives, while they behold your chaste behavior, conversation, coupled with fear, whose adorning let it not be that outward adorning of plaiting the hair, of wearing of gold, or of putting on of apparel, but let it be the hidden man of the heart, in that which is not corruptible, even the ornament of a meek and quiet spirit, which is in the sight of God of great price. And he goes on to speak about the women of old adorning themselves with this godly spirit. So it's the beauty of holiness, right? It's it's not the wearing of gold in and of itself, right? We have the Lord commending it elsewhere, but it's how it's being worn, why it's being worn, what the point is. There, there, there's not a meek and quiet spirit. There's not a, a sobriety, a chasteness, a, a godly fear that is that is being exhibited. And so So it is here in chapter 3, Isaiah chapter 3. It's the same sort of thing. Elsewhere, the Lord refers to him as the cows of Bashan. Again, in the book of Amos. Not very flattering, to say the least. The point is that this this has brought a degradation to society, to the home, to the church, to the nation as a result. And it goes with the idea of women ruling over men and so on. Mentioned earlier, the hubris, the, the, um, the wrenching of God's design and so on. Well, this results in what? Their glory is turned to shame. Women have glory. The Bible says so. Their hair is a glory to them. Right? First Corinthians 11. It's beautiful. It's, 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 it's a beautiful thing. But their glory is now turned to shame. And it shall come to pass that instead of sweet smell, you know, the balsam and the the frankincense and the myrrh and the aloes and all of that, instead of a sweet smell, there shall be stink. Instead of a girdle, a rent. Instead of well-set hair, baldness. Instead of a stomacher, which our margin says is a richly ornamented triangular piece of clothing uh, worn over the abdomen, a girding of sackcloth. And burning instead of beauty. What happens? So instead, you know, the Lord's design, when, when we're, we're following the Lord's ways, the Lord gives natural glory and beauty to, to a lady. And then when that is accompanied with a, a chaste and godly disposition and humility, and it's coupled with the meekness and quietness of spirit and so on, absolutely beautiful inside and out. There's glory there. But when we hijack God's ways and disregard God's word, that always that always ends up destroying what would have been beautiful. Instead of beauty, there's burning, the passage says. So this is what happens, right? Shame is brought as a result. And so verses 25 and 26, the man falls by the sword, the mighty man in war. There's another one of the top three. And her gates shall lament and mourn, and she being desolate shall sit uh, upon the ground. Zion is fallen, as we saw in verse 8, ruined. Judah is fallen because their tongue, their mouth, and their doings have been against the Lord. You say, okay, this was a heavy chapter. This is a heavy chapter. So, is there any good news? Is there any good news? All of that, we can't skirt the passage, we can't sidestep or minimize the passage, we're dealing with it head on, but is there any good news? And the answer is yes on two accounts. First of all, chapter 4. So chapter 4 follows chapter 3 with good news, with the Lord's good news. But without ever leaving chapter 3, we still find good news. You say, well, there's chapter, there's verse 10, say ye to the righteous that it shall be well with him, for they shall eat the fruit of their doings, and so on. That's not what I'm thinking of. My point is this. The Lord Jesus Christ advances his church by intermittent judgments. So we look at judgment and think, okay, this is terrible. This is painful. This is sorrowful. This is lost. This is bad. This is... Not fun, not pleasurable, and so on. But Christ actually advances his church through judgment. So you can ask yourself this question. What is really important to you? What's most important to us? Well, a good answer would be God's glory. Man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. Good answer. What is really important to us is God's glory. How much do you want God's glory? Oh, pastor, we want God's glory a lot. How much is a lot? Well, a lot, lot. At what cost? At what cost are you willing for God to be glorified? Uh-oh. Are you willing for there to be judgment if it gets God glory? At that cost, if the Lord is going to gather glory to himself through executing judgment, of which we have a share, are we satisfied that God is getting glory for himself? Right? That requires us to be trained. That requires us to be exercised in our souls before the Lord. The, answer, the, an, the right answer is yes, obviously. The right answer is yes, But it requires the exercise of our souls under the Lord, to be weaned from what intoxicates the rest of the world, and we so often join in, as we saw last week, but rather to be weaned from that and to be given an appetite for God's glory as an end in itself. But there is another side to this. I said that Christ advances his church by intermittent judgments. Let me put it even more. Straightly, clearly. Absolutely nothing evil can happen to Zion. Nothing evil can happen to the church. You say, well, what does that mean? Sin is evil, which brings judgment. But God's providential dealings with sin, including judgment, is never evil sin itself is evil but when god deals with his own house in his providence even in terms of judgment it's never ever evil it's good in fact it is advancing her you know men to take what we said earlier where men think of progress when in fact it's regress it's they're they're advancing backwards you can think of a corollary here men think of judgment coming as setting the church backward when in fact it is pushing the church forward the lord uses chastening in order to bring forth the peaceful fruits of righteousness to evidence his love to exercise the souls of his people the lord is actually bringing them forward where are they they're in a sinful place a sinful condition so this is actually wind in their sails to bring them out of that and to push them in the direction of repentance and of faith and of submission and of obedience and of seeking the Lord. He never ever allows a single thing, not the smallest thing, biggest thing, anything, never allows any evil to come to Zion. When you come away from chapter 3, that is heartening. That is, in, that is bolstering. That is encouraging. That is encouraging to us, that all of God's dealings can only result in benefit. If the Lord comes to judge a nation, he comes to judge these United States. He is judging these United States, as you well know. But he continues to accelerate and he continues to to increase the judgment upon these United States. It will result in magnificent good for Zion. The loss may fall hard upon the nation. The nation may itself end up like every other empire in the dustbin where it belongs, but not the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ. Never, ever, ever Zion. Assyria collapsed. Babylon, really phenomenal empire, more phenomenal than ours in so many respects, collapsed into the dust. Same thing with the Medes, same thing with the Persians, same thing with the Greeks, same thing with the, the Romans, and so on. At every one of these points, Zion is being pushed forward, being pushed upward. The Lord is bringing blessing to his kingdom. And so if we can take some of the things that we've been hearing in other sermons in recent weeks about citizenry in the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ, about, about being self-consciously belonging to another country, of our life revolving around his cause and kingdom, of contending for his crown rights and allegiance to him. And if all of that can get clear, not just in our heads, but in our hearts, we can actually embrace even difficult passages like Isaiah 3 because we know that whatever it entails... It will result in kingdom advance, in glory to God, chiefly, and in good to Zion. That is, my friend, good news. That is good news indeed, before we even get to chapter 4, with all that it brings to console and strengthen us. And so in this, we're learning, in difficult chapters like Isaiah 3, we're being taught wisdom, Who is this God? What has he said? How does he work? What does he do? What are the principles? What are the patterns? And how do we observe these things in the unfolding of providence? There is good news, of course, because of all that we heard this morning. There is good news because of all that the Lord Jesus Christ has done. We look at this and our hearts become faint and we read this passage or we read elsewhere of them being so brought so low that mothers are eating children and so on and our stomachs churn within us and we feel weak as water and so on and so forth because we're we're placing ourselves as it were mentally into those circumstances of judgment but my friends all that judgment pales in comparison to the judgment we heard of this morning that fell upon the lord jesus christ The judgment that he suffered as the Lamb of God makes all of the rest of this look like child's play. That needs to be taken into our souls as well. What a Savior who not only saves to the uttermost by subjecting himself to the wrath of God, but saves in such a way that he ensures that everything that happens in the history of the world brings forward the cause of Zion for his own glory. Stand for prayer. Almighty God in heaven, our King, our Lord, our God, the all wise God, to whom be glory forever and ever. O Lord, give us ears to hear, to not push away from any portion of the scriptures, to not shrink back. Give us, O Lord, to look full into the light of these truths. Grant that we would walk in wisdom, be taught in wisdom, exercise discernment. We would lay up the good truth and treasure in our own hearts and souls. O Lord, we confess that there is no God like unto our God, who orchestrates what seems to the world to be Chaotic and confusing. But a God who orders it according to a divine decree. So that thy single, singular purpose is brought to pass in all the works of providence. O Lord, increase our faith, we ask for Jesus' sake. Amen.